special thank you to Anna, Josh, Steve, and Alex. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is our full-time jobs now. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. When it comes to left media, there is no charity, only solidarity. This is Sam. This is Steffi. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Steffi Haynes from Bloody Elbow. Hi, Steffi. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you holding up? I am doing well. It's day 973 of (laughs) quarantine, it seems like, but I'm doing all right. So briefly, can you tell the audience what you do at Bloody Elbow? Well, it's it's changed. It's evolved over the Mm. last eight years. This April 1st will be eight years that I've been at Bloody Elbow. I started out as a writer. I was podcasting still for Tap Out Radio, and I was brought on to write. And that's what I did because I was interviewing everybody under the sun. But over the years, I've I've morphed into just a podcaster and a tech producer of the entire mm. Bloody Elbow Presents podcast network. So I host four shows And we have about 11, no, we have 10. And I either record and post-produce those shows or I post-produce those shows after they've been turned into me because there's one right now that it gets gets recorded somewhere else and it's turned into me for post-production. That's a ton of work. It is. And I do it all manually. I don't use um, a lot of filters. There's new filters now that filter out ums and long spaces. I don't do that because a lot of long spaces actually, sometimes if you speak low enough, it'll register just a little blip on a long space, especially people that say, "Mm mm-hmm, or uh, small agreements like that. So it's it's a ton of work and I don't trust filters. (laughs) Mm. And I've often wondered if Mookie Alexander is some kind of MMA AI because of the way he sounds sometimes. <laughs> Mookie has a voice that is absolutely made for radio. He should be doing commercials and things like that. His voice is incredible. I noticed that must be why he introduces a lot of other people's shows as well. Right. We Well, it was my idea to have him do all of the intros and the outros for, <laughs> for the Bloody Elbow Network. Now, how did you get involved with covering the sport of MMA? And actually, how long have you been at it? Uh, I've been at it since 2005. So uh, this this fall will be 15 years because it was either mm. October or November. I, I can't really remember which. I've been a fan, God, ever since I can remember because my pops was a big combo- combat sports fan. And growing up, I watched boxing, uh big pro wrestling fan, PKA karate. I took Taekwondo (laughs) classes for a year and a half when I was in middle school. Um, it was, it was a natural progression to, to land on MMA, but I did not start watching from UFC one. I was 
running around being footloose and fancy free teenagers. So I didn't actually get into it until about 2001. I, the first event I ever saw was UFC 31. And that was, um, Oh, it was Randy Couture and, uh, Pedro Hizzo. Uh, mm. Chuck Liddell beat, beat the monster on that one. He beat Kev- Kevin Randleman. Um, mm-hmm. There was, a, I can't remember who, uh, Matt Sarah. Matt Sarah and Shoney Carter were on that one. But mm. I started watching then. And then I just got involved with a few people in the sport because after that, I was looking everywhere for stuff. And mm. the chat rooms were just coming out. So I just got enmeshed in the community through. Um, the chat rooms and then a little later on through sure dog uh the the underground and then social media started coming along a few years after that so myspace was really big at the beginning of the boom of ufc when tough was coming out and things like that i was basically just along for the ride at the at the beginning and um during all of those chat room talks and stuff, I met a lot of people. And one of the people I met was this guy named Jeff. And he had this show called MMA Conversations. And it was just this little one man deal. And he was having guests come on the show. And I started out as a guest. And then he quickly realized that I knew a lot of people. He he watched me on social media. He saw who I was interacting with. And I had become friends with a lot of fighters by then. So he asked me if I would be his co-host. And I started co-hosting with him. I was one of Kung Lee's very first interviews. I think I was the second person to ever interview Kung Lee outside of like post-fight interviews after uh, K-1 and stuff like that. Because this is when Kung Lee was still big in K-1. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, Pro Elite contacted me and they wanted to have a podcast of their own and they wanted me to host it. So they told me, put together a podcast and we'll pay you. So I put together Cage Side Live. And my very first co host was a guy that a lot of people know on Twitter, Mad Lab. He's a. MMA, a fantasy MMA handicapper. He makes the lines for fantasy MMA and he does a lot of analysis. He's quite popular. And he was my first co-host. Um, that was back at the end of 2006. And that lasted until 2008 when Pro Elite went under. And after that, I'd already made friends with um, Punk Ass and, and Scrape and Mask from Tap Out. So they picked me up and I did tap out radio. We turned cage side live into tap out radio. We already, already had a really nice site, very professionally done. And so I turned into tap out radio and I stayed tap out radio for the next four and a half years until tap out went under. And during that time, I met up with a, Mike Russell online and we became friends. He used to run cage potato and he gave me my first writing gig and he showed me all the ropes on how to fine tune my skills and how to write for MMA. And after that, in 2012, Nate Wilcox, the uh, co-founder of bloody elbow, he found me, he hired me and I've been there ever since. Mm. I don't write much anymore, but I still do interviews here and there when I get time and there's something compelling. But uh, yeah, that's been my journey. That's almost like the history of MMA, basically, in the U.S. Pretty much. I think a lot of us came up that way, although a lot of us 
weren't females in the beginning. Now, from your perspective as both a fan and someone who covers the sport, what do you think is the reason for MMA's popularity? Well, for me, it's all about the fight that incorporates all those elements of everything you love. You know, you've got mm. pro wrestling a little bit, regular wrestling, uh, boxing, the martial arts, and, and it has a wild uh, primal feel when you first start watching. You, they, they used to promote it as no holds barred. They don't promote it that way anymore. But back in the day, it was no holds barred. And you you had this feeling like you were watching something that you weren't supposed to be watching. It was very Fight Club-esque. And back in the day, when I first started watching and started hanging out in the underground and sure dog people used to trade tapes videotapes mm. back and forth and things like that and that's how you got to see a lot of stuff what you just said makes me wonder about kickboxing why it never took off in the u.s especially muay thai or k1 and i think it's to your point it's not quite mma it's not quite boxing and doesn't have the history of boxing so it's just kind of in between where <laughs> neither side are, are that interested in it i, I think Kickboxing has has always been kind of this niche sport, and mm. it didn't do so well because it's mainly held overseas. It's not mm. held domestically, and a bona fide superstar never really emerged to capture the attention of uh, the fans the way boxing and wrestling. And I mean, even BJJ, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, they had the Gracies and. I think the Gracies were more popular than anybody out of kickboxing. I mean, how many people do you know that knew who Andy Hoog or, or Ramon Deckers were? Mm. Uh, only true hardcores know that. You know, Remy Bonjowski and Bader Hari and Mel Melvin Menhoff, they succeeded in, in, in a, getting a little bit of a following, but it was more like a, a cult following. They were never mm. really mainstream. And I feel like if, if, K1 had had the money to really sink it into promoting the sport and the athletes the way other combat sports, the way boxing or the way that um, PK Karate had uh, American telecasts and stuff like that. Man, PK Karate was huge in the 80s, mm. but they didn't have that kind of money. And then they got mixed up. Well, they were rumored to have gotten mixed up with ties to the Yakuza. And those rumors alone were enough to really put a damper on sponsors sinking money into it. So they never really had much of a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of anyways. To this day, K1 still owes Ray Sefo like $800,000. That is wow. freaking nuts. <laughs> so then from your perspective, a lot of it might be just like the inability cash wise to promote stars. Sure. Absolutely. And something you mentioned earlier about being one of the only women coming up in MMA media at the time, there is the stereotype that only men like MMA. Now, do you find that to be at one time true or, or still true? Or do you think it's kind of a stereotype that some pearl clutching type people like to make and actually MMA fans are quite diverse? There are a lot of women that are fans right now. But when I first started engaging in this community, the women were few and far between. When I started going into the forums, they were almost non-existent. You could count on one hand the amount of females out there. Now there's there's tons of of women that are fans. When I first started out, there was one female journalist, and that was Loretta Hunt, who I 
have long considered to to be uh, a mentor of sorts to me. Now there's a lot of of journalists and podcasters and fight fans, the television personalities, and most importantly, women fighting in mainstream promotions. I'd say we've come a really, really long way since since when I became a fan. Now, in speaking of MMA's arc, you mentioned the Ultimate Fighter, and that was like one turning point that made it bigger. There's another thing that comes to mind that's more recent, which is the Mayweather-McGregor fight. And I think maybe the UFC mostly thought it would be a boon to MMA and the UFC itself. But do you think that it turned out that way? Or do you think it might have helped boxing more than it did MMA? I think that fight helped Floyd, Connor, and the UFC's bottom line only. Mm. I don't think it did much for MMA. I don't think it did much for boxing, except piss a lot of people off, leave a bad taste in a lot of mouths, because neither sport gained anything from it as a whole. They didn't gain any extra fan base, just the key players, the ones that were directly involved, and that's the UFC brass. Um, money, money promotions, uh, the money team promotions and, and Connor and, and Floyd directly. Now I've noticed something. I feel like a lot of MMA media people have talked about the need for an MMA union. Even anonymous MMA writer, Jack Slack talks about this a lot, excluding fighters who now have podcasts, almost all of MMA media Seems to be, from my perspective, pro-union, especially if I follow them on Twitter or online. And also, a lot of them seem to want Medicare for all. Now, do you think MMA media attracts people with this type of leaning, as some right-wing fighters imply? Or do you think covering MMA and caring about fighters makes you realize the need for unions and healthcare because you see day in and day out what it looks like not to have it? I think it's more the latter. It's it's hard to do your job day in and day out and and bear witness to this meat grinder that chews up a fighter and spits him out and it doesn't miss a beat and it doesn't stop to look back. It's it's hard to see that and not care what happens to these guys and gals in the aftermath because the MMA machine, the promotional machine is a cruel beast and as as you go along, you get to see that more and more. So I feel like it's more the latter. I don't think it actually, the sport actually attracts left-leaning people. <laughs> I would 100% agree with you. I think I didn't even know much about unions until I became a fan of MMA. And then I had to compare it to other sports. And then I could see in that comparison what it looks like to have it versus not having it. And it's going to be, you're going to see a lot of differences too, because, you know, collective bargaining for a team is way different than collective bargaining for individual athletes. Along with that point, then I started watching UFC from actually UFC one and following MMA media, especially in the early days, it very much felt like fans glowing about how great MMA and the UFC was. And the media seemed more to be on the side of the UFC, but now that's changed where it seems much more about the athletes and on the side of the athletes, which is the norm in other sports, but not always so in MMA. So what do you think spurred that change? Social media, the great social media boom. Like I said earlier, it came along mainly with MySpace. It, it started with those little chat rooms, but it really 
hit with MySpace and then later Facebook and Twitter. But I would say 2005 onward saw a lot of people gain access to information about how the business was run. There were so many hardcores that were looking for information and that that supply was so limited. And uh, it only came from a few sources. You had Basically, you had Sherdog, you had The Underground, and MMA Weekly. MMA Weekly was a big deal outside of Sherdog because they gave you coverage that was different from Sherdog. Uh, I I felt like it was a little more unbiased coverage Mm -hmm. than you got from Sherdog. Those were the places to go. And it was circulated faster and to a broader audience when social media came along. You had fans lots of fans coming in and they had a voracious appetite for this this new fight club this this gladiator sport and once you got in that circle and once you had access to circulating this information fighters started airing out details of what goes on behind the scenes and they started Mm. giving interviews and once the entire community had access and that community was growing exponentially everything changed and now we could see facts and figures and details and now that scruffy ass cat was out of the bag i thought you were so right on when you mentioned on a bloody elbow podcast that the difference between someone like conor mcgregor and mike tyson might be the difference between pre and post Twitter fighters. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that and your thoughts on social media and its influence on combat sports and how fighters are portrayed? Well, um, fighters are portrayed how exactly how they, they want to be portrayed. Take Colby Covington, for example. Colby mm. Covington wants to be a heel. But sometimes he gets confused. Sometimes he wants to be the good guy and sometimes he wants to be the heel. But he comes across exactly how he puts his his material out. And a lot of people view him as beyond the heel, as an incompetent heel because he has terrible shit talk. He <laughs> doesn't have good delivery. And when he gets flustered, he reaches for the lowest common denominator. He reaches for things that most other people wouldn't. He crosses lines. He starts invoking things that he should not be invoking. Um, mm-hmm. When you look at Brazil and you call them all dirty animals, filthy animals, and things like that, there's a problem. And he comes across exactly how with everything that he's putting out. And I think that fighters are very, very responsible for how they come across. Sure, the UFC is pushing them to have a bigger social footprint because that equates to more watchers, more streamers, more people that are paying for those pay-per-views. So the bigger you are, the the bigger your fandom. And I think the UFC sort of, um, they, they provide the breeding grounds for, for a lot of this. The point I was making earlier about what you said in an episode about Tyson and about how he came around before Twitter. I believe my point back then was a lot of people didn't get a lot of this bird's eye view of all the bad things that were happening Mm. with Tyson. You had just basically the news headlines and whatever was playing on the radio and whatever happened on ESPN. And social media has has made that where that casuals, people that aren't even fans of whatever sport, 
can get access to this because of the trending hashtags and things like that. So now if you do something bad, like, you know, Connor's under investigation for sexual, two different sexual assaults. Back when Mike Tyson was coming out of all of his, his, uh, stuff with the rape, when he came out of jail, newer fans didn't know what was going on. And they didn't know that all during the nineties, Tyson was in and out of jail. Mm-hmm. For various other things, he, I believe he assaulted a waiter at one point. He has been accused of sexually assaulting two or three different women. There's been lots and lots of issues with Mike Tyson since, but because it was going on in the 90s, it kind of flew under the radar. Somebody like Connor, who is just as big now as Tyson was when he was coming up in the late 80s and early 90s, but there's social media. So Everything, every move Connor makes, he's under a microscope and a big Mm. one and a microscope that everybody in the world can get a look at without even having to be a fan of Connor or the sport that he participates in. Yeah, I think you're right, because even with somebody like Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian, where their original notoriety started with sex tapes because it happened so early on before the influence of all of the social media we have now, I've met people who don't know that they ever has sex tapes. Not that bringing that up or highlighting that is important or it's good to shame people, but just was amazing to me that people now just know them as being famous. But the impetus of them being famous was before the machinery of Twitter and all those other types of social media platforms. Absolutely. So let's go into fighter pay then. What do you think about performance bonuses or win bonuses? I think the bonus system is gross in general. I can tolerate performance bonuses much better than win bonuses. Win bonuses need to go. When you have the fighters only get a full purse if they win, that is such a draconian rule that the the UFC has and and lots of lots of promotions have. I don't know of a promotion that just offers one big chunk, you know, the full purse. Having having it split up and and basically giving the signal to the fighter that you don't get your whole purse unless you win is it's gross. Pay them their full purse and and be done with it. Do you think that might also be why MMA corners are so hesitant to throw in the towel because they get a percentage of the total the fighter makes, right? So that means if they happen to somehow win, then they'll make a much bigger chunk. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. There's not a bigger argument for for that right there, what you just said. So what about just fighter pay in general, especially now that with all the lawsuits happening, we're a bit more aware of the revenue that the UFC is making. And so we're seeing the percentage that the fighters are making in comparison. Let's just talk about UFC. Do you think that it's appropriate? Absolutely not. Full stop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's not. And it's getting worse because oh, really? with the evolution of Dana White's contender series, what we're seeing now is the bottom half of cards, the prelims are being filled out with these brand new guys that are coming from the contender series. So they get to be on the lowest possible tier of both the Reebok pay and of basic UFC purses, which is 10,000 to show and 10,000 to win. And that's gross because now we're seeing bigger roster cuts. Just recently, 
I believe a week ago, 13 fighters in one chunk. And, and Maribek Tysonov was at the top of that, that, that wow. roster cut. Back in the day, I would say six, seven years ago, it was a sight to behold if the UFC cut five fighters at one time. Now we're seeing roster cuts regularly of 18 fighters, 20 fighters, 24 fighters. This last cut of 13 fighters was the smallest one we've seen in a long time. Wow. They're cutting these guys that are making decent what most other organizations would be considered decent. But for the UFC, making huge, huge profit margins, they're only giving their fighters just under 16% of the revenue share. <laughs> just under 16%. It's not even right at the 16% mark. Yeah, which is probably the worst in all of major sports. Yes. What do you think about that Reebok deal? Do you think the UFC shot themselves in the foot with that deal? Because like you mentioned earlier, prize fighting is about creating stars and individualizing stars, right? So do you think that hampered them in their ability to create new stars because everybody has to look the same? I, I don't I don't know about that. I mm. I do think the Reebok deal is is trash and the, <laughs> the pay level of the Reebok deal is trash. The many, many mistakes that they've made with the uniforms, with the names, with the countries, just with everything is trash. The robbing of fighter individuality. It's also trash. Did I mention that it was trash because the whole thing is trash? <laughs> For fans who are more recent to MMA and UFC now, maybe they don't remember the days where you could have sponsors on your apparel. So for those people, like how much of a chunk of their income was having sponsors on their clothes? Okay, the UFC had a sponsor golden era, and that was from about 2006 until right around 2009. Fighters uh, were reporting sponsors individual sponsors paying as high as like 50,000 bucks for placement on shorts and for a uh, a fight banner to hang in inside the ring from the corner i mean the cage from the corners um mike swick at one time was he was sponsored by one of the the luxury watch companies and they were paying him 50,000 bucks for placement on his shorts that's probably more than what he was making <laughs> and then on top of that you had most most of the fight shorts were divided into quarters or into mm. thirds. The front of one leg, the front of one leg, and across the butt. And so if it was divided into quarters, it was, you know, butt cheek, butt cheek, front of leg, front of leg. We've seen mm. them outfitted with eights, you know, just as many sponsors as they could cram on there. Walkout t-shirts. Tap Out was a big sponsor of of walkout t-shirts. And then Affliction and Silver Star and things like that. There were so many ways that you could get a lot of sponsors and make a lot of money back in the golden era. So then, especially for exciting fighters who might not be, let's say, championship level, they might have been making more from the sponsorships than they were from how much they were getting paid. Sure. But the, the reason the golden era was so, the window of that was so small, two and a half, three years, is because can't, they soon realized that their return <laughs> was minimal. And so mm. uh, they started 
backing off on uh, on how much they were paying or they would still offer the big bucks and never actually follow through with being able to pay or they couldn't pay it all and so that window of the golden era was quickly closing up do you see any fighters new fighters with star potential that you could see becoming a big name one day in mma and ufc Sure, sure. I mean, you can you can look directly into the UFC. Francis Ngannou, mm. he's huge by virtue of being a human wrecking ball, and he's he's crossed into that that lovely territory where people look at him and want to make boxing and do fantasy boxing matches. You know, everybody's like, how, I wonder how <laughs> he would do against Anthony Joshua. How would he do against Tyson Fury? Mm. And they get that little ta- that little touch. His his uh, animated gifs or gifs, however you want to pronounce it, float around on social media of his knockouts. You have Derek Lewis, by mm. virtue of being a funny, charismatic personality who can also take your head off. But I think the biggest one right now is Zhang Wali. She mm. is on her way to being a megastar like Conor McGregor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story about her. China paid the UFC about $7.5 million for the annual broadcast rights of the UFC in China. That's for the entire year. That's what they paid, $7.5 million to broadcast UFC over there. Mm-hmm. Wiley's defense against Joanna, th- this mm-hmm. past fight she had, it made around $57 million in one night from new subscribers. Mm. Mm. So once the the UFC got word of that, they are now looking to renegotiate that deal and they want double now because <laughs> they realize that Wiley uh, Zhang Wali is a big deal and she is she is going straight north. Now with all that mentioned then what about fighters that you thought were going to be stars and didn't quite pan out? Wow. There that could be a really long list, but I'll, I'll just give you two for right now. Mm-hmm. And uh Tyson Griffin, he was poised to go places until he ran into Frankie Edgar. <laughs> and it seemed like Frankie Edgar just took it away from him because he didn't really do very well after Frankie after mm-hmm. he lost to Frankie Edgar. And another one, Melvin Gillard. Mm. Athletic to the point of just I mean, he was he was magnificent and he had knockout power, but he couldn't get out of his own way. And as a result, he wasted all that potential on just running around, not training, being his own worst enemy, doing drugs, just you name it. He's had so many problems, been arrested for this, that and the other and just wasted potential with Tyson Griffin. I think that. Frankie Edgar was his undoing because his ceiling was was realized right there. And to remind people, Tyson Griffin, before he got into that fight with Frankie Edgar, had just beaten not too long ago Uriah Faber. So he had taken all of Uriah's thunder with him into the UFC. And then Frankie took it from him. Yep. So what do you think when you hear the word USADA? I think independent contractors shouldn't be forced to undergo the USADA testing because they're not employees. That's a point that needs to be drilled home to a lot of people. 
I think USADA has a lot of kinks to iron out as far as their threshold levels go, um, as far as having general knowledge of a lot of the things that they're testing for. And I don't like the idea that the UFC pays USADA to monitor their, their guys and gals. I feel like it's a conflict of interest. I really do. Mm -hmm. At least with the commissions, there wasn't a, a payment directly to an entity that was responsible for your testing. I've never liked it. Then has your opinions on PED testing changed at all over time or has it remained relatively the same? Oh, it's changed a lot. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. I'm much more tolerant of tainted supplements these days because it's been shown that USADA can mess up, the commissions can mess up. Mm. And more importantly, it's been shown that companies, the supplement companies themselves are not infallible, that some even intentionally add steroids into their mixtures and doses that seem just potent enough to show positive results. All natural, blah, blah, blah. But you, you, you're seeing gains <laughs> that you normally only see when you're doing some bad juju, you know? <laughs> and I find that these days I lean more towards doing away with testing entirely than keeping it. I mm. feel that's the only way you're really going to get a level playing ground is if you just take that whole thing and do away with it. Because these days, steroids aren't what they were in the late 70s when all those eastern block athletes in the olympics were seeing really really bad side effects they're not like that anymore they're much more refined and they don't have the deadly side effects that those those horse steroids and things like that <laughs> equine steroids that people were taking that were so dangerous we're not seeing that kind of thing these days because they they they've got the science down a lot better and the other thing is, is athletes are finding more and more ways of microdosing and cheating and you're never really going to have a clean sport it's just impossible because as the science behind these steroids increases the science behind being able to get away with taking them also increases so just in my opinion i i kind of lean just like luke thomas get rid of it all the message you've been driving home this whole time about access to information being more proliferated now I think that same thing has happened for our understanding of performance enhancing drugs, especially because of USADA and also because of media folks like you covering this. What's opened my mind also is that PEDs, performance enhancing drugs, aren't all steroids. So sometimes with everything you mentioned, on top of that, sometimes you're like, why is that a performance enhancing drug? You know, you just always thought that meant a catch all term for steroids. And you're like, why is that on there? Why is that on there? You look at their ban list and you're like, should all of these things be banned? Exactly. Um, marijuana shouldn't be banned. <laughs> I'm glad that they're increasing the threshold limits, but honestly, they shouldn't even have it on there, period. Like I have eczema and I think there's certain even eczema creams that I use. If a fighter were to use that same eczema cream, because a lot of times they do have to be steroidal to reduce inflammation, I think they would get busted. Right. And we saw that with Chad Mendez. Because remember, his was an eczema cream. That's what they they got him for for what three years. So yeah, you you make a good point. Uh, there's so many things that actually could be considered performance enhancers. Caffeine, for instance, coffee, mm -hmm. but they're not on the list. Are painkillers on the list? 
I believe in competition, they might be, I, I believe they are. I believe they are there. You have to have, you have to reveal in, in your, in your questionnaire, you have a, a pre-fight questionnaire. You have to reveal that sort of thing. And they, they make the determination from there. So then that's even crazier because you're restricting what they can take, but also they have to fight under pain. I'm not saying painkillers are good, but maybe, you know, somebody wants to smoke marijuana to get over their pain and you don't even let them do that. Right, exactly. And, you know, Elias Theodoru, he, or Elias Theodoru, excuse me, that's how he pronounces it. He just became the first fighter with a, um, a TUE and a therapeutic use exemption for marijuana. He's the first, like after all these years, he's, he's the, the first. first. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so let's talk about the big elephant in the room. We're in the midst of a pandemic. So how do you think the response to this pandemic, COVID-19, has been with different promoters? How would you grade them? The UFC would be a solid F minus. Is, <laughs> is there a grade lower than an F minus? Um, I think Bellator has handled things in an exemplary fashion. Scott mm. Coker, he didn't have to cancel Bellator 241, but he did anyways without having a government sanction tell him to do so. And I think that's great. They'd already decided to hold it behind closed doors before that. And on the day of, he just second guessed it. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to cancel it. And I'm going to pay everybody. And I'm going to pay everybody from the top of the production all the way down. I'm going to pay the camera crews. I'm going to pay the commentary teams. I'm going to pay the officials. I'm going to pay the cutmen. And of course, I'm going to pay the fighters. And he did. Mm. And I think that's fantastic. It doesn't get any better than that. And his replies when asked about what about Bellator 242 that's going to be held May 9th, which is about six weeks out. What about that one? And he said, we're just going to have to play it by ear because we need to keep a we need to keep a handle on the information that's coming in before we can make a determination. And I think that's smart. It's not making promises that it's going to happen. It's not saying it's not going to happen. And I think that he is the ideal model of how you should handle something like this. And then you have Dana White over on the other side digging in doing his fighters wrong that UFC London cancellation and excuse me, postponement. And that's gross. <laughs> that's gross in itself because now by saying postponed that the fight might still happen, uh, that the card might still happen and these fights might still happen. They can get away with not paying the fighters, which oh. is exactly what they've done. Mm. It's, it is now 10 days removed from when U UFC London would have happened. Fighters were already in London. Ashley Evans Smith made the trip all the way over there. She got there. The fight, the, the fight got called off. The card got called up. So then it took her two days to get back. And do you think she's been paid? She has not. Not a single person on that card has been paid. Uh, Leon Edwards got jerked around too. Mm. He gets a call on Sunday night. Or, yeah, I think it was Sunday night saying, you know, fights fights in London have been called off. Get to America now. He says, hold up. What do you mean now? You got three hours. Get your stuff together and get on a plane. Mm. And 
you know, after he went through the process in his mind of everything he would have to do and that he would get over here and possibly get stuck here. And he's got a wife and kids and parents and sisters and brothers and extended family. And then his corner is the same. They, they made the hard call and they said, no, we're not going to do this. And the very next morning, just hours later, the, the big travel restrictions went through. So he would have gotten stuck over here. So when you have the UFC digging in like that with no care to their fighters' safety or well-being, only with care to their bottom line and their obligation to ESPN for a throwaway card like UFC in London, I mean, that's that's just, it's grotesque. Mm. Uh, there's no other way to slice it. It's gross. Yeah. To our earlier point, right? Without unions, you have to rely on the moral sense of Dana White, which he has none. And to, well, a lot of people point to Dana White because he's the mouthpiece. And sure, mm. I know he aligns with the overlords at Endeavor because mm -hmm. th those, those directives are coming from Endeavor. But we have mm. to remember Dana is a shareholder and a, and a pretty big one in Endeavor. So he is a part of Endeavor. He is part of that mm. team of brass. So mm. it's the whole team and Dana is the mouthpiece, but Dana could soften these things a little bit. Attacking mm. MMA media and saying that we're all wimpiest and whiniest <laughs> people and that we don't have families to take care of of our own that uh, apparently we're stick figures or ghosts in the machine we're not real people with real families and and how real homes or anything real obligations financially we we we're not real so actually speaking of that what happens to mma media right now while basically all sports are on pause my goodness you get to see some of the most creative stuff that you will ever see there is oh, outlets are scrambling for content right now so you're mm. seeing awesome videos and awesome writing and good content coming out of podcasting this is this is what happens when there's a, a limit on actual sport. And we only see this like when we have downtime, like we, at the beginning of the year, we had three weeks without a UFC. Mm. And that's when you see these outlets coming up with fresh, innovative ideas for churning out content. And it, it's kind of cool. I think it gets those creative juices flowing. So I think it's a good thing uh, in some ways. I just hope that all of the outlets can survive this because, mm. man, uh, if if you're not part of a bigger outlet, I, I feel like you're in trouble. Okay, let's end with this. What's one rule change that you'd like to see in MMA if you had a magic wand? And let's say in particular in the UFC, what would be one thing you'd like to see changed? Knees to a downed opponent. It's It's an old rule. It needs to be done away with. And because it's different across commissions everybody's got a different rule for it how many points of contact um, <laughs> they have there's one commission that has the one where you you know, they have a, a rule against playing the game where that you know when you see somebody trying to trying to do something and, and you put one fingertip down or two fingertips down um do away with it because it's really hard to generate the kind of momentum you don't have the space to generate the kind of momentum and force with a knee 
with someone on the ground to to really do a ton of damage like if you're throwing a high kick for for instance and the same thing with 12 to 6 elbows you can generate a lot of momentum and force from bringing your elbow up and down on top of someone's head it's almost impossible to really do a whole lot of damage there now you got standing elbows, which they're perfectly fine with, which you can draw all the way back and swing from Wisconsin, pretty much, and clean somebody's clock. And we've seen that. And and standing elbows are much more likely to create cuts, too, that, that could potentially stop a fight early. But 12 to 6 elbows, that's the dumbest rule. And it, it's <laughs> it's an old one that stems way back from the beginning. And back to your point about knees to a down opponent, that used to be one of uh, Tito Ortiz's early bread and butter moves. And once that got away, he became known as this like boring ground and pound from the guard. But kind of like Mark Coleman with removal of headbutts, it completely changed the game. And that was that was going to be my last point was something that I would like to see is bring back the headbutts because <laughs> you can't really do a whole lot of damage with a headbutt. But man, I, how awesome would it be to see headbutts again <laughs> let's say for this uh tony and khabib fight that would be so freaking awesome because you just know tony would be the first one in there trying to headbutt <laughs> all right thank you for your time steffi so for the folks who are on the interwebs where can they find you you can find my work at bloody elbow because i i host four different podcasts there and my editing work is found on all of the podcasts there. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Crooklyn MMA. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. 